0: Now, as we shift gears a bit and move towards our teaching time, we'll be continuing in the book of Daniel, but as we get into all that, we're going to start with a scripture reading, and my friend Renee, he's going to come, and she's going to lead us in that.
1: Good morning. This is the Word of God, Daniel 5. King Belshazzar made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in front of the thousand. Belshazzar when he tasted the wine, commanded that the vessels of gold and of silver that Nebuchadnezzar his father had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem be brought, that the king and his lords, his wives, and his concubines might drink from them. Then they brought the golden vessels that had been taken out of the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem, and the king and his lords, his wives, and his concubines drank from them. They drank wine and praised the gods, of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. Immediately, the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace, opposite the lampstand, and the king saw the hand as it wrote. Then the king's color changed, and his thoughts alarmed him. His limbs gave way, his knees knocked together. And his color changed, and
2: his lords were perplexed. Thank you, Renee. Hey, good morning, church family. It's good to see you. If you're new, I'm Aaron. I'm one of the pastors. I really love being with you guys on Sundays, and I'm thankful to get to open the book of Daniel. We're going to be in the book of Daniel for pretty much the whole fall, right up until Advent. I'll tell you more about our Advent series coming up later, but we're going to do a series called The Women of the Advent, looking in Matthew 1. That should be exciting. Um, I only mention that because it's like going to be October, and then it'll be Thanksgiving and Christmas. I hope you got your shopping done now. So this year is going quite fast, quite quickly. Daniel chapter 5, this uh, maybe not quite as well-known story, but it is interesting to think how many people in our culture use the saying, oh, the writing is on the wall, uh, even without knowing necessarily where it comes from. It comes from Daniel chapter 5, this story, this really unique, interesting story about the hand of God showing up in great power uh, at a really pivotal moment in the history of the life of his people who have been exiled, taken away from their homeland, longing to be restored and to be returned to their homeland. And uh, here we see God acting in a very powerful sort of way. And so I'd like to pray, and I'd like to invite each and every single one of you uh, to open your hearts to experience the hand of God and his care and his love and his strength here today as we look at the scriptures. We you pray with me? God, thank you for your word. God, thank you that your word is truth and that your word is life. And God, thank you that we have the freedom to gather like this on a Sunday morning to open the scriptures, to sing loudly and to declare, Lord Jesus, you are Lord God, for myself, I ask that I would be humbled under your mighty hand to only teach that which is in line with the truth of your word. God, I pray for every single person who is here today that we would open our hearts, we would, we would humble ourselves before your mighty hand to, to be instructed and guided, that we wouldn't resist your hand of care and providence and direction, and that, Lord God, you would make all of our focus and attention go on Jesus Christ, in whose good name we pray. And everyone said... Amen. I want to start with something that will help us contextually understand what's going on. So, I've got a little picture, a little slide here we'll throw up on the screen. Uh, this is a, a puzzle, this is a riddle. This is what I want you to try to solve. Uh, This is not necessarily what was written on the wall by the hand that that greatly alarmed King Belshazzar, but it's something kind of like this, a jumble of letters, a, a jumble of words. I assure you that there is meaning here. So I'm challenging you in the next 20 minutes to solve it, okay? And since I am not Nebuchadnezzar, I will not tear you limb from limb should you as a group not get it. But I will ask the gentleman in the sound booth to play the Spice Girls uh, in about 20 minutes. If you do not figure it out, you're going to hear some of the worst music ever created by humankind. And if you love the Spice Girls, I'm sorry. I don't mean any disrespect. It's just awful, objectively speaking. So you have 20 minutes to figure it out, or you're going to experience the wrath of baby Spice. Okay, here's what I, here's what I actually want to start with today. I want to talk about the hand of God. When we talk about the hand of God, the Bible uses this phrase, the hand of God or the arm of the Lord or sometimes the fingers of the Lord kind of interchangeably. And here's an article from the Holman Bible Dictionary I think that really summarizes this topic very well. So I'll start with this. This is what they write. The Greek and Hebrew words that are translated by the English word hand uh, appear approximately 1,800 times. That's both the Hebrew scriptures and the apostolic writings in the New Testament, 1,800 times. Of those occurrences, it's intended in a literal sense only about 500 times, and in a figurative sense some 1,300 times. The largest number of figurative uses of hand relate to God. So you'll see this phrase, the hand of God, or in thy hand. It's an an idiom or a, a common saying referring to the supreme and almighty power and authority of God. For example, in Isaiah 59, verse 1, God's hand is described as mighty. Exodus 13 describes God's deliverance of Israel from Egypt by his strong hand. You've heard that phrase before? The creative work of God involved the use of his hands to make the heavens and the earth. You can read about that in Psalm 8 or Psalm 95. God uses his hands to uphold and guide the righteous. Here's something interesting. Punishment and affliction come from the hand of God. The hand of God, this is is why I wanted to read this article. Listen to this. The hand of God can be upon someone either in a good or a bad sense. In a good sense, it meant to bring aid, help, redemption, rescue. While the negative connotation meant to hinder or distress, So I want you to keep that truth in mind as we dig in to this story of the hand of God appearing. I want you to keep that idea in mind that throughout the Bible, the hand of God can be upon someone in a positive sense or in a negative sense. All right. If you got your Bibles, Daniel 5 verse 1. King Belshazzar made a great feast for a thousand of his lords. Big party. And drank wine in front of the thousand. Now we've got to pause right there. We can't even get past the first verse because who in the heck is this King Belshazzar guy? Okay, pop quiz, Sound City Bible Church. Who is the king that we've been talking about up to this point? Who has been the king for the first four chapters? Nebuchadnezzar, you got that right. Don't think it's gonna buy you any more time. I'm still playing the Spice Girls in 20 minutes. You're down to 18 now. But here's Nebuchadnezzar. You're excited about it, aren't you? You like the Spice Girls? Okay, that's fine. This is a reward for you. I'll tell you the, I'll whisper the secret to you a little bit later on. King Belshazzar. I want to do a little bit of a history lesson briefly because this is one of those points of tension that over the years, people who are skeptical of the Bible will say, oh, the Bible got this one wrong. So here's what happens so far in the story. 605 BC, King Nebuchadnezzar became the king of Babylon and he took over pretty much the entire known world and that is his first attack of Jerusalem. The story of Daniel starts in 605 BC. He attacks Jerusalem. He takes, remember in chapter one, it says he takes these young men back to Babylon and along with them, he takes these cups, these vessels from the temple of the Lord and he he takes them back to Babylon with him. Now, he did not destroy Jerusalem at this time. He put in place a puppet king who was supposed to pay tribute and was supposed to just basically rule literally just as, a, as kind of a, a figurehead through uh, Nebuchadnezzar would rule through him. But eventually the king, you know, as, as the Israelite kings were wont to do, stopped paying tribute, stopped making good decisions. And so Nebuchadnezzar comes back in 587 BC and he destroys Jerusalem. This is when the temple is burned. The great temple of Solomon is destroyed and there's much lamenting and weeping. We don't know exactly. It's somewhere either in 561 or 562 BC, Nebuchadnezzar dies. And the way that Babylonian politics worked, I know you were all really, you woke up this morning very curious about Babylonian politics in the ancient Near Eastern world. But it started a succession of just one really weak king after another. The longest, I think, that anyone king ruled was something like three years. One was just a few months. They all were assassinated. And then finally, in the year 555, 556, somewhere in there, a guy named Nabonidus becomes the king. And Nabonidus is well known in archaeology and ancient Babylonian studies as the last king of Babylon. In fact, there's all of this writing and there's all of this information about Nabonidus as the last and final king of Babylon who was defeated by Persia. Now you might be thinking, wait a minute, I just read in the Bible that it says Belshazzar is this last king of Babylon. So is there a conflict between the scriptures and the conflict between uh, what archaeology says? Give me a minute, we'll get to that. Something about Nabonidus that's interesting is he abandoned Babylon for about 10 years. He left because he, 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 he wanted to worship the moon god. And the other people in Babylon thought, no, that's not a good god to worship. He was, he was closer to almost like a monotheist. He only wanted to worship this one god. There was fighting and politics and, you know, very interesting stuff. And so he fled and he went to Saudi Arabia and kind of hid out. While Nabonidus is hiding out, while he is basically being an absentee king, the Persian Empire starts to rise. If you can imagine a map of the Middle East, uh, Babylon today is where Iraq is, Persia is today where Iran is, and Persia starts taking over the, ol- the whole entire known world. Their conquering c- kingdoms are falling left and right. In fact, they take over all of the Babylonian Empire until only the city of Babylon remains. It's about 50 miles south of Baghdad. You, can, you could go there today. I wouldn't recommend it, but you could go there. 50 miles south of Baghdad, and they're surrounding the city. They've taken over everything else. Just the city of Babylon remains, and we have, with a high degree of accuracy, the date, October 12th, 539 B.C., Persia storms the city of Babylon, and Babylon the Great is fallen. Junlong Sao, one of the scholars we've been leaning on for this series, he says this, Babylon, being surrounded by two sets of double walls totaling some 85 feet in thickness and further defended by fortified towers throughout, was considered an impenetrable fortress. This perhaps accounts for the nonchalance in the city, even when the invading force is camped just outside. They said the walls were so thick, ancient historians write, that they would do chariot races on the tops of the walls. Another historian wrote that they had somewhere in the neighborhood of eight years' worth of food stored up in the city. The Babylonians like, oh yeah, sure, the Persian army is just sitting right outside, but we will outlast them. According to the Greek historians Herodotus and Xenophon, the leading citizens of Babylon were happily enjoying themselves at a banquet when the invaders surprised them. This is fascinating to me. According to Xenophon, the Persians dug a trench around the city at night while the Babylonians were partying at night, temporarily diverted the Euphrates River. The Euphrates River flowed through Babylon. So they had food, walls, and fresh water. They were good. Diverted the Euphrates River into this trench and entered the city unnoticed by walking along the riverbed. Swiftly, the invaders moved to the palace and killed the drunken guards and eventually also the Babylonian king whom the Greek legend from Xenophon doesn't name but simply describes as a reckless and godless youngster. Now, who is this reckless and godless youngster? Nabonidus is the final king of Babylon. Well, Xenophon says there's somebody else. Tremper Longman, another scholar, says, until recently... Belshazzar was thought to be one of those errors in the Bible's understanding of history that led many to doubt its accuracy. However, after the discovery and decipherment of cuneiform tablets began in the 19th century, we began to learn more and more about the period in question. As a result, Belshazzar emerged from the shadows as a definite historical character. Today, we have abundant textual witness. We've got a lot of writings— to the fact that he was the son of Nabonidus. More than that, Belshazzar was co-regent and actually in charge of Babylon during his father's 10-year absence from the capital city, thus explaining the reference to him as a king. It is cool. So Belshazzar, in Daniel chapter 5, is going to be called the king of Babylon. He is not technically the king, but the Bible uses uh, culturally appropriate language to just refer to him as the ki- He's the guy in charge, while his dad, Nabonidus, is off worshiping the moon god with his friend, you know, his band of hippies. They call Belshazzar in this story the son of Nebuchadnezzar. When in fact, he is not technically the son of Nebuchadnezzar. And friends, we need to understand we're reading our Bible, we need to not impose rules upon the scripture that the authors themselves were not imposing. He's not meaning he is the biological direct offspring of Nebuchadnezzar. What it means is he is the guy who's ruling over Babylon and he is the successor to Nebuchadnezzar. He is intentionally, the author of Daniel, is intentionally linking Belshazzar and Nebuchadnezzar together in our minds. I would even just submit to you, that having Belshazzar by name uh, put into this record shows you that this really is a firsthand eyewitness. See, Belshazzar kind of disappeared from the historical awareness over time. Xenophon didn't know what his name was. Herodotus didn't write about him. They said, well, Nebuchadnezzar was the king. But when you start digging a little bit deeper, like, well, yeah, Nabonidus was the king, but there was a guy, his son named Belshazzar ruling in his place. I think that shows you that somebody was right there paying attention and knew exactly what was going on the very night that Babylon fell. This is a side point, but uh, it's really fun, and so I just want to do it. You'll like this. I, when I was reading and studying up on some of this history this week, I came across a guy, a German archaeologist named Robert Coldway. Uh, And he was, he lived like in the 1850s to the 1920s. And he was like the first guy to go in to Iraq, to ancient Babylon and start digging up all of these ruins. You got a picture like this is 1900, 1905. It's dusty, it's sepia tone. He's wearing a hat like Pete probably, you know, like just like very, very old school archeology. span And he found the room where this story takes place. He found the throne room of Nebuchadnezzar. It had been lost to the sands of time, lost to history. He writes about how the walls were covered in like a white gypsum or a white plaster sort of substance so that the writing would have been clearly seen. He shows where the walls are, and there's a, it mentions the lampstand, like the little alcove. He found the alcove where the lampstand goes. This, is, this one's just fun. He found a little storage closet, and in the storage closet, I have a photo. I'll put it up here on the screen. This is a cuneiform tablet, and it's obviously, for us, we don't recognize like what these squiggles look like. It almost looks like a heart monitor or something. But this is a cuneiform. It's written in the Akkadian language. And this was found in a storage room. And it, it, um, it includes instructions on how much food certain prisoners should get. So such and such guy should get this much grain and this much oil. Such and such prisoner should get this much grain and this much oil. And I know you're all thinking it. You can see it in the lower left-hand corner. It says, Jehoiakim, king of the land of Judah, should get X, Y, and Z amount of food. It says it right there. You can read about that in 2 Kings if you want. The king that was deported from Jerusalem, taken to Babylon. Archaeological evidence that at least he was getting food while he was there. All right. I'm done. Let's get back to the story. So he's having this feast, this definite historical person, Belshazzar, when he had tasted the wine, commanded that the vessels of gold and silver that Nebuchadnezzar, his father or his predecessor, had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem. And he says, bring them, bring them. So that the king and his lords, his wives and his concubines, he's got multiples of both, might drink from them. So you got to imagine, he knows that the Persian army's out there. This is either a let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die sort of moment, or more, I think, it's just let's eat and drink and have fun because there ain't no way they're going to get in here and, and, and attack us. They brought in the golden vessels that had been taken out of the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem. And the king and his lords and his wives and his concubines drank from them. You know, Nebuchadnezzar took them, but he never defiled them in this way. Belshazzar and his, his, his crew, they drank wine and they praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. These are the gods of Babylon being mocked, but it also calls to mind gold, silver, bronze, stone. Kind of makes you think of Daniel chapter two, doesn't it? Immediately, the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace opposite the lampstand. And the king saw the hand as it wrote. This is interesting. Verse six. Then the king's color changed and his thoughts alarmed him. His limbs gave way and his knees knocked together. His color changed. One of my kids got sick right after going back to school and she walked out of the bathroom like, you are gray. She's always a, a gray because our last name. I spent like the color gray. Like just, you ever seen somebody just like the color just drained from them? Nebuchadne- or Elshazar, I'm sorry. The, the color drained out of his face. His thoughts alarmed him. So that goes from his face to his heart because in the ancient Near Eastern, your thoughts come from your heart. And then it says his limbs gave way. And boy, is that a delicate translation. In the Aramaic that this is written is, it says, the knots of his loins were untied. There's a, there's a translation that says exactly what we're all thinking. That he soiled himself. His guts gave way. And his knees knocked together. It's his face, his heart, his guts, his knees, his entire self from head to toe is completely undone. Then the king called loudly to the enchanters, the Chaldeans, the astrologers. The king declared to the wise men of Babylon, whoever reads this writing and shows me its interpretation shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around his neck and be the third ruler in the kingdom. Oh, that's interesting, isn't it? One, two, three. You can be the third. Belshazzar is second because his dad, Nabonidus, is the first. There it is. Then all the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the writing or even make known to the king the interpretation. The king, Belshazzar, was greatly alarmed. His color changed, and now his lords were perplexed. All right, put, the, put my, my riddle back up on the screen. You guys are almost out of time. Okay, uh, let me rearrange a little bit and see if this helps you. I'm, I'm nice. I'm nicer than, than Belshazzar. Can we uh, go to the next one where I line it all out straight, Okay. So instead of being in vertical columns, some ancient rabbis wrote it that it would have been written vertically. Others uh, say maybe it kind of went, well, it would have gone from right to left for them. We speak English here, so I'm going from left to right. Anybody, any guesses? Do you know what this is? If you were at the first service, shh, quiet. Huh? Duck duck goose. duck, duck, goose. No, it's not duck, duck, goose. All right. Can you get, get the spice rolls, John? Get it queued up. Here we go. Verse 10. Now here enters the queen. The queen, because of the words of the kings and the lords, she heard the uproar, came into the banqueting hall. Okay, pause. Uh, This queen was not there for this drunken party. She was elsewhere. And she's going to speak very authoritatively, like a a mom would speak to, to Belshazzar, as well as she's going to recall some forgotten history. So it is highly unlikely that this queen is one of Belshazzar's wives. In fact, many scholars, they kind of argue between this may be his mother, Nabonidus' wife, or even possibly his grandmother, Nabonidus' mom, who was herself at one time married to Nebuchadnezzar. So either way, you need to see this more like a queen mother, like like an older, seasoned queen mother coming in. She came in and declared, O king, live forever. Don't let your thoughts alarm you or your color change. There is a man in your kingdom in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. Back in the days of your father, your predecessor, light and understanding and wisdom like the wisdom of the gods were found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father the king, made him chief of the magicians, enchanters, Chaldeans, and astrologers because an excellent spirit, knowledge, and understanding to interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve problems were found in this Daniel whom the king named Belteshazzar, which, by the way, is the same. Belshazzar, Daniel, Belshazzar. We In the English, they add the little T-E to kind of differentiate. It's basically the exact same name. A tale of two Belshazzars. So now let Daniel be called, and he will show the interpretation. Now this is interesting, is it not? They forgot about Daniel. How could you forget about Daniel? Were you paying attention when I showed you the history of when Nebuchadnezzar attacked Jerusalem and took these young men into captivity and how many years has gone past to this night when when Babylon falls? It's roughly 65 years. If, If Daniel and his friends were approximately 15 years old when they were taken into captivity, that means that Daniel is now 80 years old or thereabouts. And he's a relic of a bygone era. We've moved on. There's been a lot of political upheaval. A lot of different kings have come and gone between Nebuchadnezzar and now this crown prince, spoiled brat, trust fund kid partying it up with the vessels of gold that were taken from the Lord's temple. They forgot about Daniel. Verse 13, so Daniel was brought in before the king. The king answered and said to Daniel, listen to the, listen to the like, put-downs in his voice. Oh, you're that Daniel one of the exiles, one of the slaves from Judah, whom the king, my father, brought from Judah. I have heard of you. Remember how Nebuchadnezzar used to say, I know that the spirit of the gods is in you? I've heard that the spirit of the gods is in you and that light and understanding and excellent wisdom are found in you. Now the the wise men, the enchanters, have been brought in before me to read this writing and to make known to me its interpretation, but they couldn't show the interpretation of the matter. But, But again, I've heard that you can give interpretations and solve problems. Now, if you can read the writing and make known to me its interpretations, you shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around your neck, and you shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. Daniel answered and said to the king, keep your gifts for yourself. Give your rewards to someone else. And I I will... Read the writing to the king and make known to him the interpretation. But before I do that, I'd like to school you a little bit. O king, the most high God gave Nebuchadnezzar. You remember this? Nebuchadnezzar, your father, kingship and greatness and glory and majesty. And because of the greatness that, that God gave him, all peoples, nations, languages trembled and feared before him. If he wanted to kill somebody, he would? If you wanted to keep him alive, he would. If you wanted to elevate someone, if if you wanted to humble someone, he would do that. But when his heart was lifted up and his spirit was hardened so that he dealt proudly, he was brought down from his kingly throne and his glory was taken from him. And he was driven out away from the children of mankind and his mind was made like that of a beast and his dwelling with the wild donkeys. He was fed grass like an ox and his body was wet with the dew of heaven until he got it through his skull. That the Most High God rules over the kingdom of mankind and sets it over whom He will, and you, His son Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart though you knew all of this. But you've lifted yourself up against the Lord of heaven. And the vessels of his house you've brought in before you and you and your lords and wives and concubines have drunk wine from them and you have praised these gods of silver and gold, uh, bronze, iron, wood, and stone who don't see, they don't hear, they don't know. But the God in whose hand is your breath, the God who holds your very breath in his hand and the one who holds all of your ways, you have not honored him. Well, you get the sense that elderly Daniel does not have any time to mess around. (laughs) I like this, Daniel. Hey, buddy. I got something for you. A little history. You should have known better. Okay, real quickly, last time, put the slide up there. Okay, I have put some spaces in place to try to help you see, and I'll give you one hint, one clue. These are units of weight. Say it, yeah. What do you see? What's the first? Kilogram. That's for our Canadian friends. Yep, pounds. Yeah, ounces. You got it. Verse 24. Then from his presence, Daniel continues, the hand was sent and this writing was described, inscribed, I should say. And this was the writing that was inscribed, mene, mene, tekel, and parson. And this is the interpretation of the matter. Mene. God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Tekel. You have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Perez, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. Wendy Witter, a Bible scholar, says that there's these consonants. It would have only been consonants written on the wall, and they could have been vocalized in a number of different ways. Daniel read the letters according to the simplest possible pattern in Aramaic, forming three nouns. A mene, or a mina, tekel, or a shekel, Parson, which is the plural of peres, each word likely referred to a standard of weights and measurements. But these three nouns do not present an obvious interpretation. It would be like trying to make sense of a message, grams, kilograms, tons. In his interpretation, Daniel read the consonants according to another Aramaic pattern, forming passive participles that meant respectively numbered, weighed, divided. It's pretty amazing stuff you picture that jumbled up bunch of letters. Daniel walks in. He knows not only how to read the words, but what they mean. And he delivers it with full-throated confidence before this arrogant king. So Belshazzar gave the command and Daniel was clothed in purple. A chain of gold was put around his neck and a proclamation was made about him that he should be the third ruler in the kingdom for like a few more hours. Because that very night, Belshazzar the Chaldean king was killed and Darius the Mede received the kingdom being about 62 years old in Genesis chapter 11 Babylon was founded and God scattered them by by confusing their languages and here in Daniel chapter 5 Babylon is ended through an act of God confusing their language he's sovereign over human history friends the hand of God appears in this moment. and For Belshazzar, it is the moment of his greatest terror. But for Daniel, it emboldens him. He has confidence and he has boldness to speak words of truth to the king because I think Daniel would have been calling to mind the promises of God. Somewhere around 100 years before this moment, the prophet Isaiah spoke. And Isaiah had given warnings to the people of Israel and the people of Judah to repent, repent, or God will bring judgment. You will be exiled. But there's also words of the hand of God at work. Look, look at this in Isaiah 48. It says, Listen to me, O Jacob and Israel, whom I called. I am he, I am the first, and I am the last. My hand laid the foundation of the earth and my right hand spread out the heavens. When I call to them, they stand forth together. Now you assemble and listen. Who among them has declared these things? The Lord loves him. The Lord loves his people, Israel. He loves his people, Jacob. And he shall perform his purpose on Babylon. His arm shall be against the Chaldeans. Thus says the Lord down in verse 17, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. I am the Lord your God who teaches you to profit, to do well, who who leads you in the way that you should go. Oh, that you would have paid attention to my commandments. Then your peace would have been like a river and your righteousness like the waves of the sea. Your offspring would have been like the sand and your descendants like its grains. Their name would never be cut off or destroyed from before me. If you'd have been faithful to the covenant, if you had been paying attention to the commandments I had given to you, I would not have exiled you and pulled you out of the land. And yet there is still redemption for God's people. Verse 20, go out from Babylon Flee from Chaldea and declare this with a shout of joy. Proclaim it, send it out to the ends of the earth and say, the Lord has redeemed his servant, Jacob. This passage shows us that the same hand of God that brings judgment on the wicked is the hand of God who brings redemption for the humble. Belshazzar sees the hand of God and he is undone from head to toe. He cannot stand before the mighty presence of God because he is filled with pride and filled with self-sufficiency. Meanwhile, the same hand of God shows up and Daniel has hope and has confidence because he knows that our God is a redeeming God. Remember in Daniel chapter 4 when Nebuchadnezzar had lost his mind and then he was restored, and he said, No one can stop the hand of God. Friends, the hand of God is powerful. And none of us can stand before God and stop his purposes or say, What is it that you think you're doing? And the hand of God does bring judgment. Hebrews chapter 10 says, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Friends, Babylon was the most powerful empire known in the history of the world. They had larger armies, more wealth, two of the seven ancient wonders of the world in the quickest amount of time they had conquered the entire known world, no one could have imagined that Babylon would fall. And yet like a pile of dry brushwood, in a moment, Babylon is gone because the Lord's hand was upon them. That ought to make us have some humility as Americans. I know that we as a nation, we're a what, you know, 250-ish years old, nations rise, nations fall, the kingdom of the Lord stands forever. But even more so, not just as Americans, as human beings, we ought to recognize that it is a fearful thing to experience the hand of judgment from the Lord. And friends, if your theology doesn't have place for the wrath of God and the judgment of God, then I would submit to you that you're not paying attention to the brokenness of the world. We're seeing all sorts of outrage right now in our culture, on social media, and in just in general culture over injustices and and horrible things that have taken place both in our present and our past as a nation. That's a little bit like it. For those of you who have been a parent, have you ever witnessed your kid getting picked on and bullied? Has anyone ever come and graffitied your house? Are you not angry at seeing someone harm someone that you love? Do you not think that God is angry about the humanity that he created in his image and likeness treating each other so horrifically with racism and and slavery and warfare and the, the good planet and the creation that he made being ravaged. God is not pleased by human wickedness. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. And yet at the same time, we see that those who bow down before God don't experience his hand in that way. We don't experience the arm of the Lord in that way because the prophet Isaiah also wrote of the arm of the Lord being revealed in a very unique way. You guys know this passage from Christmas time, Isaiah 53. Who has believed what he heard from us? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant. Who's the he? Who's the one that is the arm of the Lord being revealed? Who is it talking about? For he grew up like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. He had no former majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. He, the arm of the Lord, was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised. We esteemed him not. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities, and the chastisement that bought us peace was put upon him. Friends, who who is the arm of the Lord that Isaiah is talking about? It's Jesus. Jesus is the hand of the Lord that brings redemption to those who will humble themselves and call upon his name. And I had this thought this week as I was thinking about Jesus being the hand of the Lord. Everything that Jesus did, his incarnation, his life, his death and resurrection, his ascension, all of it was for our rescue. But there's this particular moment that the the writers of the New Testament will consistently point to. It's the moment when Jesus died on the cross. That this is the moment when Jesus defeated the greater Babylon of sin and death. And defeated the greater Nebuchadnezzar of Satan himself. It's in this moment on the cross And I saw something this week in in Luke chapter uh, uh, 23 that I'd never thought of before. When Jesus is on the cross, he calls out with a loud voice and says, Father, into your hand, I commit my spirit. Jesus entrusted himself into the hand Of the judgment of God, that Jesus experienced the arm of the Lord in his fury and in his wrath for the judgment against sin. God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. But in that same moment, Jesus knew that the hand of God's redemption would be for him because he told his followers, I'm not going to stay dead. But on the third day, I'm going to rise again and show you that I have all power and all authority, not just in the earth, but in all of the universe. Friends, this is Jesus entrusting himself into the hands of the Lord. Charles Spurgeon said, Brothers, the Lord Jesus this day has conquered all our sins because of what Jesus did. There's there's not a transgression left to accuse his people. There is against them in God's book no record. He has perfected forever those that are set apart. The work is finished. Salvation is complete. The right hand of the Lord has done for us what we could not have done for ourselves, what the angels of heaven would not have been so foolish as to have attempted. The Lord Jesus Christ has most surely completed for all believers. Heaven rings this day with the joyful songs of his triumphant saints who tell how the right hand of the Lord is exalted. This is good news friends because Jesus experienced the hand of the Lord's judgment we who trust in him now get to experience only the hand of God's redemption and grace John chapter 10 Jesus said my sheep know my voice I know them they follow me I give them eternal life he says and they'll never perish and then what is it that he says no one will ever snatch them out of my hand. I took my youngest daughter uh, to the opening weekend at Husky Stadium. Somebody gave me some tickets, and so I took her, and she loves sports and competition for a for a, a, a six-year-old little girl. She can tackle pretty hard. And she t- I took her to the stadium and I and we were excited and we got some snacks and it's her first time going to a big football game and, and, and as we're going through the crowd, well first she made me carry her for like the three miles we had to walk from the parking lot but, but we got into the stadium and she wanted to walk and she was really excited and, and we're going through the crowds and we're kind of weaving through the people and, and I just kind of had my hand on her shoulder or my hand in her hand or at times my hand on her head and, and at times you should hear like a fireworks because we got there a little bit late and the Huskies started scoring early and, and uh, the sheared fireworks she got kind of scared and she looked up and she could see see that I was there with her, and then there were other times where she got a little bit distracted, and she starts to kind of wander, and I do one of those dad moves, you you just kind of grab them, and you pull them back, and you know, if I just did that to some random stranger, hey, get your hands off me, right? You, we feel it differently, but because she's my daughter... And because she knows that I love her, she could experience that little bit of that grab, that little bit of a discipline differently. It's it's like Jesus saying, you're trying to wander and you're trying to jump around and you're trying to get yourself lost, but you yourself can't even snatch yourself out of my hand. How good is it to know that Jesus has you in his grip of grace? Another verse that occurred to me this week that, that... that that just occurred to me in a whole new way. Revelation chapter one, John, one of Jesus' best friends during his earthly life and ministry, John has this this vision, this revelation, the book of Revelation, and he sees Jesus not in humility, but in exaltation. His eyes are like a flame of fire and his his feet are like burnished bronze and John is freaked out. He says, I fell at his feet as though dead, but he laid his right hand on, on me and said, Hey, don't be scared. Yeah, I, I was dead, but I'm alive forevermore. And I hold the keys of death in Hades. Last night, a group of us gathered in the backyard of one of our church members, a woman who's been battling cancer for this year. A group of us gathered and we lit candles and we read scriptures and we sang songs and we prayed. And we just gave testimony to the hope that our sister Lori has had in Jesus. About an hour after we all packed up, I got a text from someone that she passed away and she's with our Savior face to face. The greatest fear that any human being can have is death what's going to happen with my death? And here we see because of Jesus, he puts his hand of love and says, don't be afraid. I've been through death. And I came out victorious on the other side. And I give eternal life. And I've got the keys to death and to Hades itself. So you trust in me. It's going to be okay. Friends, we get to experience not the hand of judgment, but the hand of grace. How good is that? How how unbelievable is it that we who have been ourselves so wicked, I don't know about you, me, I've been wicked. I've been wicked. I've been every bit as arrogant as Belshazzar. I'm every bit as deserving of the hand of the judgment of the Lord, and yet he reached out to me in grace. I get to be lifted up and to be held securely and I get to be comforted and reassured. I don't know about you, but that just blows me away. So what do we do? I'll let the exhortation come from the words of the Apostle Peter, 1 Peter 5. He says, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time he might exalt you casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. So step one is humbling ourselves before the mighty hand of God. If you're here today and you've never humbled yourself before the Lord and placed your faith and your trust in Jesus then I'm pleading with you to do that today. Don't stand in pride and opposition to God. You might think that maybe it's neutral between you and God, but I'm telling you that if you're standing on your own, if you're standing with pride, then you have a a day of judgment coming. Only way... We could stand in that backyard last night and sing hymns of praise and through tear-soaked eyes declare the goodness of the Lord is because those of us who are there who have trusted in Jesus have an assurance that our salvation is secure. And I want that for you. And I know it's not popular to talk about things like wrath and judgment, but maybe I would dare to just love you enough to say, humble yourself before the Lord and receive his grace. For those of you who have done that, you've, you've placed your trust in Jesus, then our urging is to continue to walk in humility. And I love how it, t- it ties two thoughts together in this verse. Humble yourselves before one another, taking all your worries and your anxieties and throwing them on God. I think those two things are linked If we don't humble ourselves before one another, we're going to have a lot more anxieties. Why? Because we're putting on a pretense and a show like we've got it all together. Friends, we're called to humble ourselves before one another. Who am I? Nobody. Who are you? A big mess. Welcome to the club. Oh, we're just, you know, just walking in total victory. Yeah, Jesus is. Meanwhile, I'm on the struggle bus, sitting in the second to last row. Humble yourselves before one another. Friends, I cannot tell you how thankful I am to be here this morning after witnessing an event last night where it was a bunch of people who were just okay showing their vulnerabilities and their weaknesses. When, when various leaders or staff members come up here and say, Hey, get involved in a community group, it's not so that we can put some sort of numbers together that make us look like an impressive church. It's because hard times are going to come in your life, and you need people that you can humble yourself with so that they'll help you cast your anxieties upon the Lord. Why? Because He cares for you. Not here to play church, not here to put on a Sunday show. Yay, come for the band. They're good. They're good. We got great musicians. Sometimes I make funny jokes in my sermons. Great, I'm glad you're entertained. Come get real before the God of the universe and his people. I can't, I can't even believe we get to experience the hand of God's care in that way. He loves us. He cares for us. God, I ask right now that you would help us to be humbled before you. God, I want to pray right now for anyone who is here who is a Christian, who feels afraid of your hand of judgment. God, I pray that you would break that lie in their heart and in their mind right now. That God, we would acknowledge what it is that you have done for us in Jesus Christ, and we would rejoice that there is no judgment or wrath left for us. Yes, God, sometimes your hand may need to pull on us or to discipline us but it is the loving hand of a father who cares, not the hand of a righteous judge. God, would you bring us to a place of deeper humility before one another? We could cast our anxieties and our worries and our fears and our cares upon you, God, because we know that you love us, that you're with us, that you care for us. And even like these exiles, like this Daniel in his old age, seeing your faithfulness throughout all the decades, God, may we stand firm to the end until that day that we either breathe our last breath or you split the sky open and we see you face to face. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Amen.
0: Amen. We're going to respond now through Lord's Supper. I'm going to invite the younger students class to come on in and join us when they're ready. Should have received your communion elements on your way in. If you didn't receive them at the entrance, feel free to grab those. If you do have them, you can pull those out. Communion, the Lord's Supper, is a time for those of us who have placed our hope and our faith in Jesus. It's a time where the body of Christ gathers around the table. And so even though we're sitting in our seats where you're at, uh, we're not going to all actually come down and gather on a table. Uh, It's this idea that we're gathered together as the body of Christ. We get to partake of this meal this morning that will remind us of Jesus' sacrifice in our place for our sins. As we've been hearing about the hand of God this morning, uh, we're reminded of Jesus' hands. The hand of God, we're reminded of Jesus' hands as they were pierced when he was nailed to the cross for the forgiveness of our sins. He took the hand of God in judgment, a judgment that he didn't want necessarily or deserve, but... Willingly endured for us because he loves us so much. I'm going to read a passage from 1 Corinthians 11 on the Lord's Supper. It says, The Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. I'll pray for us in just a moment, but I would encourage you to pause, take some time, and um, as Paul's instructed us here, to reflect, to remember what Jesus has done, his sacrifice for each and every one of us. And then examine your heart. Take a moment and, and pray and ask God, where in my life am I not living the way that you've called me? Where do I need to ask for forgiveness? Where do I need to repent of the sins in my life? And then remember that idea that as we're gathered on this table this morning, we're meeting with Jesus. He wants to meet with you. He loves you, and he's... Uh, he's calling out to you. And so I would just encourage you to take a moment to pause, reflect, pray, and examine your heart. And then when you're ready, uh, partake of the bread and the cup, and then join us as we stand and sing and celebrate our resurrected Lord. I'll pray. Jesus, thank you for uh, taking the hand of God, the judgment of God, uh, to cover our sin, to um, sacrifice yourself so that we may have hope and forgiveness and eternal life and Um, God, I pray that as we come to the table this morning, as we reflect on your promises, I pray that we would feel your presence, that we would feel your love, the hand of your comfort, your love, your care for each one of us. Uh, We give you this time now. We worship you, Lord. We honor you. You alone are worthy of our honor and our praise this morning. So we worship you, Lord Jesus. Pray these things in your name. Amen.